You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Short Bowel Syndrome, Strategies to Reduce Dependency on Parenteral Support in Adults and Children, is sponsored by Prova Education. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here is Dr. Valerie Corin. The use of intravenous parental nutrition to manage chronic intestinal failure due to short bowel syndrome can have a significant impact on a patient's autonomy, self-esteem, safety, and overall quality of life. Our goal as clinicians is to help patients achieve enteral autonomy by eliminating the need for parental nutrition. With the approve or the introduction of GLP-2, first in 2012 for adults and later for children, this has allowed some patients who were previously unable to be successfully tapered from TPN to gain enteral autonomy. Can GLP-2 analogs help us achieve this goal? And how successful have you been in implementing your use in patient care? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Valerie Corrin. And I'm Dr. Kishore Ayer. Welcome, Dr. Iyer. Let's take a shot at answering some of these important questions. What does a typical patient who's dealing with intestinal failure due to short bowel syndrome, or SBS, look like? And what are they dealing with on a daily basis? That's a good place to start, Dr. Corin, because for most of us living normal lives, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive of the near-catastrophic impact of intestinal failure. We take eating and drinking as we please for granted on a daily basis. Just think of the situation where a patient has intestinal failure, a condition where the body is not able to meet its nutritional requirement through food and drink by mouth or the enteral route. The impact of the underlying disease as well as the impact and therefore the need to require intravenous supplementation on a daily basis perhaps is just catastrophic and far-reaching. It impacts every aspect of life. As one patient said to me as we were confronting his recent diagnosis of intestinal failure, it is really hard to think of one social thing we do today that does not involve food or drink. So this is a devastating disease. Of course, intravenous nutrition, parental nutrition is life-saving for certain and allows many patients to survive with excellent qualities of life, there is no escaping the continuous impact and potential risk to life even with a diagnosis of intestinal failure. Because it's an uncommon disease, many people don't recognize or do not know of somebody with intestinal failure and that of course adds to the catastrophic nature of this diagnosis. I would agree with you about that, Dr. Iyer. I think you know, for the infants that I take care of, a lot of them, this is all they know. All they know is being on TPN and getting tube feedings. I think it is a big adjustment for the families who are used to or were expecting a child who could take a bottle, who would sleep at night, versus now they are concerned with children who have central lines, who have tubes in their stomach and their small bowels, maybe stoma. So it totally changes quality of life for these children. And those children that are older, that may have like a mid-gut volvulus, you know, those children ate and were normal, quote unquote. You know, they swam, they traveled, they played contact sports. They did everything as any other child would. But after they unfortunately may get the diagnosis of short bowel syndrome from some sort of catastrophic event, they may not be able to swim. They may not be able to do contact sports. It's difficult to travel internationally, even nationally, for prolonged periods of time because you always have to have your TPN. So I agree. I think it has such a 
impact overall on the quality of life for these patients when they develop this disease. So Dr. Iyer, let's focus on what's happening in the gut. There are a myriad of conditions that may lead to short bowel syndrome, but what's the common denominator here? What's the pathophysiology of short bowel syndrome? When you think of intestinal failure, the majority of cases of intestinal failure are due to, and are best understood by the most obvious cause leading to intestinal failure, which is anatomical loss of bowel length. And that can happen due to intrinsic intestinal disease or intestinal resection, removal of lengths of intestine for the underlying disease. So anatomical loss of bowel length is the most obvious, most common cause. Roughly two-thirds of patients, maybe 70% of patients with intestinal failure, have true anatomical short bowel syndrome as their proximate diagnosis for, uh, for intestinal failure. There's a smaller percentage of patients, roughly a third, about 30% of patients, who have intestinal failure due to functional disease of the intestine. The intestine's all there, but it just simply doesn't function adequately. And those patients still require parental nutrition, require intravenous uh, support. And, and in many ways, their consequences, the impact for them is very similar to that of short bowel syndrome. Notice we are saying short bowel syndrome rather than focusing on a specific diagnosis. So the focus is very much on the loss of surface area, loss of absorption surface area. But we have learned over the last few years that the human gastrointestinal tract is really a, and I'm no endocrinologist, but may be the most complex and largest endocrine organ because there's a variety of gastrointestinal hormones that regulate the process of absorption and digestion. And of course, an exciting development in this field over the last few years has focused on improved understanding and then exploiting the knowledge of glucagon-like peptide 2 or GLP-2. So, so that's where we are. These are exciting times in SBS because of this new world of growth factors that has opened up. Dr. Korn, one thing certainly we would both agree on, adult or pediatric, these are really among the most complicated patients there might be in most hospitals. At least when I see patients with intestinal failure, I'm thinking in terms of what can I do? Can I? Are there strategies, are there opportunities here to wean this patient off the parental nutrition or intravenous fluid to improve his or her quality of life? And ultimately also, have I exploited every opportunity there is to wean this patient successfully off parental nutrition? And finally, if we can't wean somebody uh, off parental nutrition, then our goal would be, can we at least improve improve his or her quality of life significantly? Can we keep them complication-free and be able to look at a long-term survival with a good quality of life? For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Valerie Corrin, and here with me today is Dr. Kishore Iyer. We're just about to discuss the role of GLP-2 analogs in treating intestinal failure and short bowel syndrome. For many years, Kishore, there was really no advancement in treatment. And then several years back, we had the approval of tenuglutide, a GLP-2 analog. 
How have such agents helped us to achieve the goal of intestinal autonomy? This valve has truly been a game changer in SBS-related intestinal failure. And as you and I know this history quite well, but this would not be complete without acknowledging the role of Dan Drucker in Canada, who first characterized GLP-2 and its impact. It's what is called intestinotrophic effect on the intestine. And most importantly and most obviously, it increases villus height in the lining of the intestine. It increases crypt depth. And going back to the earlier analogy of the uh, surface area of the normal intestine being that of perhaps many tennis courts. What this does in the patient with short bowel is it serves to increase the intestinal absorptive surface area. But there are some additional effects that uh, physiologic GLP-2 has. When when a healthy human being has a large meal, there is a big postprandial surge of GLP-2 levels in the blood. If one were to look for it, that presumably serves a physiologic role of absorption and digestion. But the other effects that GLP-2 has is it increases the portal blood flow. It reduces, it slows down gastric emptying. So you can see if you take a teleologic view of what is GLP-2 doing, the effects of naturally occurring endogenous GLP-2 are very much to aid the process of of absorption and digestion. The problem with uh, endogenous GLP-2 is it has, unfortunately, a very, very short half-life. Then came a recombinant glucagon-like peptide 2 recombinant GLP-2 or tetaglutide. And tetaglutide has now been extensively studied in international phase three trials. So to give you the highline results from the STEPS trial, approximately 60% of patients, just shy of two-thirds of patients who were exposed to tetaglutide, achieved, met that primary endpoint of a 20% reduction in parental nutrition. There were a smaller percentage of patients who had additional decrements in parental nutrition, allowing some patients to get actually a few days off parental nutrition. So there were patients who who had a two-night reduction in parental nutrition. Some patients came off three days a week. And of course, to me, the holy grail of uh, using tetaglutide is whether it allows some patients to come off parental nutrition completely. There is some real-world data now that tells us in the trials itself. So the STEPS trial was a six-month trial with extension data that took it to two years. And certainly some patients came off parental nutrition in follow-up of the STEPS trial data. In fact, we published in uh, Journal of Parental Parental Nutrition in 2017 or 18 the data from patients who were weaned off parental nutrition completely. And out of about 134 or so patients from memory, 16 or 17 patients came off parental nutrition completely. So representing about, give or take, about a 15% cohort of patients who came off parental nutrition completely when they were treated with tetaglutide. And of course, over time, because this appears to be an accruing effect, over time, some more patients came off parental nutrition. We published our own single-center data, much smaller cohort of patients, understandably, 
I think we had 18 patients or so. And in our hands, 11 of the 18 patients came off parental nutrition completely. So that was significant, close to two thirds of patients coming off parental nutrition. And what we observed in our report was that the majority of patients who came off parental nutrition completely had colon incontinuity, meaning they had some small bowel that was anastomosed to the colon. I just want to share one more recent paper. This was published by Francisco Jolie and colleagues from Paris that looked at the French national experience, a larger experience, about 54 or so patients. And in their experience, about 25% of patients came off parental nutrition completely, and their observations were somewhat similar to us. So bottom line, tadiglutide allows some patients to come off parental nutrition completely, and I think that's very exciting for what is really quite a terrible disease. And of course, I'm sure you are very excited of the pediatric trials that have just been published and its approval for pediatric use. What do you think? You know, as with most things, unfortunately, we don't have as many trials or studies in pediatrics as we do have in adults. But last year, the 24-week phase three study was published in children. Um, it was a total of 59 infants, or rather children who were at least one year of age to 18 years of age, and at least a year after their initial um, surgery or insult. They were treated with two different doses. They were treated with either 0 0.025 milligrams per kilogram, 0.05 milligrams per kilogram. And they also had a standard of care group that patients that were followed similarly, but of course were not receiving the actual injection. They used the same endpoints that they had used with the adults, a reduction in 20% of parental support. And what they found was that the patients who were receiving 0 0.025 milligrams per kilogram, 54% of those patients met that criteria. And 69% of those patients with the 0 0.05 milligrams per kilogram dosage. So, and it was definitely higher than the 11% of patients who had a reduction in the standard of care group. So again, I think this is also showing us that this drug can be effective in pediatrics as has been so in adults. Out of the total of 59 children that were treated, five children were actually able to be liberated from TPN. Um, the majority of these children actually had MIPCO. Three had midgo volvulus, one patient had gastroschisis, and the other patient had an intestinal atresia. So I think that as more and more people feel comfortable with using this drug, I think that we're going to see more and more data out there in the pediatric population. And I think that hopefully we find similar to the adults that we're able to liberate more and more patients from TPN. And in some cases, like in this, five children were able to be uh, liberated from TPN. That is fascinating. I think it's in line with the adult data that we've seen so far. And certainly in adults, I think there's a challenge to us as a community to try and understand uh, how uh, do we use tetraglutide in practice? What is its role in the multidisciplinary care of intestinal failure? I have a certain worldview of this. If you look at the slide uh, that I shared, this is in line very much with the opinion of Francisca Jolie that she shared with me on how should we consider introducing tetraglutide to a patient with intestinal failure. In my mind, the fundamental principles remain the same. We should optimize parental nutrition for the patient with SBS, intestinal failure. We should make sure that the patient is optimized from a parental nutrition point of view. Then we should really spend time and effort with dietary education, with ensuring that these patients are compliant 
compliant with what we call a SBS compliant diet. And that's difficult. Dietary compliance is difficult to put in place, takes time and patience, but really has significant bang for the bucket for these patients. And alongside that, we use antidiarrheals, as I discussed earlier, acid suppression, as we discussed earlier. And one will find that over the first few months of this care, three to six months of this care, typically patients will start to feel better about their disease. They have a better understanding and they will, in most instances, start to make progress towards weaning from parental nutrition or at least having less and less instability. And once you've hit a plateau or if the patient is certainly from a nutritional and medical viewpoint deemed optimized, then that would be the time I would consider whether there's a role for tetaglutide. And look, this is my view of tetaglutide is it's a very safe drug. It's a very efficacious drug. Uh, not to ignore the fact that this is a growth factor when it was approved by the FDA. It was approved with a REMS program in place. So physicians are obligated to ensure patients are well informed and understand the benefits which are considerable, the risks which are significant but manageable, and with a good discussion in place, a good understanding in place if there are no contraindications to start tetaglutide. And there are some screening tests one has to do to ensure there are no contraindications, and that would be a colonoscopy. If the patient still has a colon to rule out the presence of polyps, we do routinely an abdominal ultrasound to make sure there's no other concerns for cancer, etc., and then get ready to start tetaglutide. Well, this has certainly been a fascinating conversation. But before we wrap up, Dr. Iyer, can you share with our audience your one take-home message? One take-home message. That's a tough one, but here's what I would say. This, I've said that I perhaps used this word more than once in this 15-minute podcast, but I will say this, this is a devastating disease. There's no question about it, but these are exciting times. This era of growth factors now provides suddenly a new therapy that adds for some patients a very, very significant benefit. I have patients, uh, even adult patients with recidivism, bowel length in the single digits, less than 10 centimeters of small bowel with some colon who are managing to get off parental nutrition with tetraglutide. So I think carefully used, well-managed patients in a, in a multidisciplinary program, I think suddenly there are potential opportunities that hitherto were not available. So there is a new uh, sense of hope for many of these patients. You know, I would totally agree with that, uh, Kishore. And I think as um, the number of children that are actually treated with tadouklatide, we too will get to the point where we have more expertise with treating children with it, with feeling comfortable with managing it. And again, I would agree with what you said. We need to optimize medical management, but I think tadouklatide could definitely benefit some of our patients and help those patients go on to attain enteral autonomy. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Dr. Iyer, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you. This activity was sponsored by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com slash Prova. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.